Supper's ready. Come on, y'all. Been slaving over this for hours. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger, or TR as we call them. And of course, my red hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone cold fox, mm. who if you were to rate her ass on 100, it would easily be a 94. Mm. Also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord Baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. Dear tiny Jesus, in your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled-up fist pawing He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the damn grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, right. but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes ma'am. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All right, that is extreme, but I'm sure there are some people that see Jesus that way. So who do you see Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Um, we are embarking, the reason why I showed that video was because we are embarking on Luke 2, and like Brian alluded to, that this is a very popular uh, chapter for Christmas. You know, shepherds, uh, twilight stars, little sheep, baby sheep, baby Jesus in the manger, uh, Mary and Joseph looking very pensive and, you know, perfect for a Hallmark snapshot, right? You know, a lot of nativity scenes that follow that scene, right? Animals, you know, everybody's so pensive, right? It's like, holy, right? But have we ever thought about this? Because that's very PC, right? This nativity scene is very PC, politically correct, whatever, not very offensive. But have we ever seen that the manger is actually a sign of something that is even more earth-shattering? Very earth-shattering, not PC, violent actually, aggressive, so it's like a political upheaval. You think the protests are bad today. Think of what the protests Jesus caused back in that day. He raised up millions of people to go on a revolt. Millions of people died in the Colosseum because of him. Do we see this Jesus, this manger, as some revolutionary political upheaval? Or do we still see Jesus in a manger, baby Jesus, soft skin, for some odd reason he's Caucasian, and then, and, uh, you know, and everybody is just very pensive and just looking very peaceful. So that's our, uh, our theme today. 
Who do you want Jesus to be today? So let's go on to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. If you have your Bibles, let's start with Luke chapter 2, right there. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. <clears throat> he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and, he get, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in a cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, before we go on, I got another video to show you about what, it, remember what, how I described to you the world that Jesus entered last week? Well, let me do it again, but this time, I found this video from my former New Testament professor. And he's, what was the world like? First of all, Luke was not stupid. He, he wants to review it again to his reader, right? He did it in Luke 1. He's doing it again in Luke 2 with one sentence. In those days, Caesar Augustus, in those days, Caesar Augustus. See, in that, in that world, what is the definition of power? Power is the ability to inflict suffering onto another person. The ability to inflict suffering onto another person. So, let's say you wanted power, but you're not as strong as the other guy up at the top. So who do you inflict suffering the most? The weaker. The person who may be handicapped, may be paralyzed, who may be sick, who may be poorer than you. So what do you do for power then in that world? You inflict suffering onto those people. You follow? That is the type of world that, they, that Jesus entered in. Women, for you, you were second-class citizens, even worse sometimes. If you were slaves taken from a prisoners of war, you'll be used as entertainment. They would whip you, they would dress you up as pure entertainment and put you in the parties. If you were uh, mentally ill, if you were, uh, like, uh, had um, broken arms or legs or, you know, or you had leprosy, they would actually use you as circus acts. They would put you up there as circus acts. This is the world that the Jesus entered in. This was the world that Jesus entered in. This world thought that power is basically the ability to inflict suffering onto others. Power is the ability to put everybody under your feet. So it's no wonder that Caesar Augustus, followed with this verse, what did he do? He took a census. Now, this census is not how we do it now these days. Our, the, census for, the purpose for census for us is mainly to see our demographic, how we're supposed to uh, serve the people better, right? And uh, who are the poor, and how are we supposed to uh, navigate with our social services to serve them? No, 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 no. Not, not in the first century. That world, the reason why uh, the Caesars took a census was to tax them. Because when you tax them, you have loyalty. So this was more of a power maneuver. It was a politically charged power maneuver for the Caesars. It wasn't just some senses. It was a political maneuver to subdue people, to say, I'm the leader here. I'm the Lord. I'm the king. And not only that, he used propaganda. And Caesar Augustus, uh, I don't have enough slides to show you, but he used a lot of graffiti and a lot of propaganda to call himself the son of God. Because who doesn't want to be, right? So he called himself the son of God. He also said, because I created order through brute force, by uh, conquering foreign nations and everything, by conquering the barbarians and the Gauls and, and unite the Roman Empire, and if you've ever seen Gladiator, it's the greatness of Rome, so to speak. What did he call himself? 
He also called himself the Messiah, the savior of the world, because I created order out of chaos. You follow? Order, meaning the elite, the powerful stay at the top, and the poor remain at the bottom. Order. That's what philosophers have believed in, in Greece as well. Order. Let's maintain order. So remember, remember this. Son of God, Messiah, Savior of the world, Lord, King. Those were not foreign terms. Those terms were already used before even Jesus came into the world. People already knew this because the Caesars used them for themselves. Caesar Augustus said, I am the Son of God. Tiberius next week, uh, not next week, the following week, Tiberius calls himself God himself, Messiah. He actually even used the term Emmanuel, Tiberius, saying that I am the God, I am present, so have my statues everywhere. So follow this. It's not a foreign term, Messiah, Savior of the world. The Jews being oppressed, being taken over, and being ruled by the Roman Empire, they were told, this is your Messiah, folks. This is your Savior. You know all those prophets that were all prophesying about? Well, Caesar's your Savior. But deep down, the Israelites said, no, 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 no. This can't be right. Right? We're, we're poor. You're not taken care of. But doesn't God, isn't God merciful? Isn't God gracious? So the questions come up. This yearning for the Savior, this Messiah that, uh, that the Caesars have been propagating. This is not it, is it? So they wonder. And so, where do we see this? We, that's the world that Jesus comes in. And then Jesus comes in, right? He's born in a manger. But where do we see this, king, this, this particular king of the world enter? How does he enter? He enters into a hotel's garage. All right? It's interesting because it, uh, I was doing a little bit of a study on the, what this word in meant. You know, the inn and well, how he went there. Well, apparently it's a hotel. And where he was situated was where all the guests put their animal Ubers, <laughs> you know, their taxis, their cars. I don't know, camel Ubers, Uber camels. I don't know. And every, all their uh, transportation animals are there, right? And apparently uh, there was no room upstairs because those were belonged to the elite. They didn't allow the Jews to go in. It's not because there's no room. There's just no room for those type of people. You follow? There was no room for Joseph or Mary for poor couples to come in because the elites were at the top. This is sort of like going into a Vancouver club. Not, not knocking Vancouver club if they're listening, but it's just like that. It's like a membership-only club. And then they were not allowed to get into that. They were only allowed to go, oh, no, you stay at the garage. You go into the garage. So Jesus, our Jesus, the Jesus that we know, enters into the world where the Savior Messiah is already, the office there is already taken by this powerful Caesar Augustus. And where does he go? Where does he start entering into the world? From the bottom. He enters in the world from the bottom. And one of my um, friends who spoke on this passage, uh, I love what he said. Like, it's another topic altogether for you to do your Bible studies on. But it, it's kind of interesting how Jesus enters into this world. And he's a, it's kind of like entering into the lowliest of our lives. You get it, the metaphor? He's not here to save those people in the top who think that they're already saved, who think that they already have it all together. No, they enter, he enters right in the bottom of our, of our lives, the deepest, darkest bottom of our lives. But that's another topic. We know this, though. Luke says we knew about this. We knew how he was going to enter. How? It's because Mary prophesied that. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 1. Quickly go back to Luke 1, 51 to 53. It goes like this. 
Mary sang the song. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich empty. I got a question for you then. How, do you, in, how on earth are you supposed to save the hungry and the poor and the lowly if you don't go there? Right? Um, I still remember uh, Batman and Superman had a debate. Oh, I know. I'm using that. And then, uh, and then uh, Batman tells Superman, you know, you can't solve anything by flying over things. You have to be on the ground. <laughs> Get it? Anyway, so here, basically, Mary knew that in order to have this Savior, to save, this, save the world, save us from our brokenness, Jesus had to come into our brokenness, had to come to the lowly. In order to bring up the lowly, we have to go to the lowly to bring them up. In other words, for us today, if we really want to be Christ-like, if we really want to help the lowly, and we cannot just preach it from our, from our status here, we have to go into the low. We have to address the lowly and be part of that. All right, let's move on. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 16. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest of heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Remember the manger? Remember that Christmas thing? Right? What did the angel say about this manger? What did he say, what did he say about this manger? It's only a sign. It's just a sign, folks. It's almost like uh, I'm pointing a finger at something, and all of you are just focusing on my point, my finger, and not the thing that I'm pointing at. You, you, you get it? Many times, I think that we tend to focus, focus on the manger too much. So much so that we actually put Jesus back in the manger. <laughs> Thinking that, okay, manger, no danger. But then if he's out of the manger, he's in my life, so uh-oh, right? Let's put him back in the manger, no danger. But the, but the angel said, no, this is just a sign. A sign just to point to which child you're looking for. Because there could be a lot of kids out there, right? When you, for the shepherds, when you go in, which kid is the Messiah? Which is the true Messiah, the true Savior? And the angel said, the one in the manger. You follow? It's just a sign. But a sign towards a Savior. A sign pointing to a Savior. A sign that's saying that this is a Savior from the line of David, a true king coming to you, a savior, the Lord, the one who is going to bring peace on earth and great joy, the one who bring justice to the poor, salvation and freedom for those who are oppressed and enslaved. This sign is pointing to the child. Don't focus on the manger. Don't focus on this beautiful Christmas card that it remains so peaceful. No, this sign is telling you that there's something going to happen that's revolutionary. That's going to be aggressive and violent and coming right up against culture and the world. Don't focus on the manger. Don't think that he's going to give some peaceful little pat on the back for everyone. 
so to speak. This is a sign, just a sign. Focus on the child and what is he here to do. Isn't it baffling then, right? Like Mary and Joseph were the, probably the only ones knowing about this news and then suddenly shepherds out of nowhere from the wilderness comes and affirms your, what you've been told by the angels. It's quite baffling. And so you go, if you were Mary and Joseph's uh, shoes, you would say, huh, this is true. This is, this is coming to fruition. And then for the shepherds to see it happening right in front of them, this is really true. It's happening. It's happening. And that's why there's great joy. And however, we have to remember this. Remember about this whole Messiah thing and the Savior thing, the Savior of the world and Son of God. Who, really had, who actually had that office, supposedly? Caesar Augustus, right? And so who do you think, when the Israelites heard this, who do you think they equated the Savior and the Messiah to be then? If you were totally oppressed, if you were now under Roman rule and you see this world ahead of you, and, but you've already been influenced by this propaganda already, what is your definition of a Savior? Somebody with glory and pomp, right? Something that would come in like, a, like chariots of fire. But no, unfortunately, Luke does, does this wonderful irony. And so it says, like, you expect a savior, a king, to come down like a chariot of fire, but he actually came from the low. He's actually entering into our brokenness, into our lowliest position in our lives. And are we able to do that then? Are we able to, because the Israelites, they were, they were joyous and they, because they knew that the savior's coming. But then once they knew that it was in the manger, hmm, there's that ironic twist. Okay. Let's move on. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name of the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents had brought in the child to Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause a falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that would be spoken against so that the thought of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to the Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, we don't know, that was quite long, by the way. You guys followed that? <laughs> Sorry, my apologies. I didn't realize how long it was until I, wow. I'm running out of breath. 
We don't know how old Simeon and Anna was, right? but we know that they're quite old. We also know that they're old enough to see enough, see enough of the suffering of Israel, of how much God's people had endured. See, when Herod rebuilt the temple, many of the Israelites didn't see that temple as some thing to rejoice. Now, some of you may not know that Israel's history, but the temple was destroyed prior to that because by Rome, and then so Herod rebuilt it. But that was more of a political maneuver just to get Herod's, you know, get, get himself on the good books of the people that he's ruling, okay? So the Israelites did not see this temple as something that to be rejoicing. They thought this is a completely a fraudulent temple. It's not something that we actually appreciate. Now, why did they say that? It's because what was happening, if you knew your uh, Old Testament, what was going on throughout their whole history after when the kings was kaput? Somebody was missing in the temple. Who was it? God. God just turned his back away from the people. Uh, if you read through the prophets, God was absent. There was no longer God's presence in the temple. And so when the, this temple was rebuilt, God was still not present in the temple. You follow? And so the Israelites saw this temple as nothing, just fraud. But then something happened just here where, of what we read. What did we read? Something happens. You and I both know that Jesus is God, right? And then these two prophets, prophets who are supposed to be able to discern God's presence, God's spirit, they sense that there's something going on in that temple now. So they come to the temple. And they realize that well, what's there? The presence of God. God is returning to his people. God is returning and being present in the temple. And if you don't know about the temple, the temple was all about, uh, the temple involved a lot about the cosmos and the creation of the world. It's a representation of the world as well. And so for God to return to the temple, not only that, it's a symbolic because it's God returning to the entire world. God is coming back to the world. God is back, actually, to the world. And so Simeon and Anna, Simeon said this. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That's just basically a fulfillment of the Isaiah's prophecy, basically, saying that God has now come to save the world. God is now present in the temple. He has returned. God's presence is now in the temple. And that is why it caused... All, all people there in, with great joy. He has returned, but only to, the, uh, to those people who sense God's presence, which was Simeon and Anna. You know, it's interesting because uh, um, he enters into the temple, but then <laughs> there are people uh, that there that didn't get it at all, didn't sense it. Only like Simeon and Anna got it and only Mary and Joseph got it. And I'm just wondering, because we said that at the temple, there's Jews there still. There's still, like, how come they didn't feel it? How come they didn't get it? And so I go, this is a good lesson for myself and for all of us who go to church, <laughs> right? Have you ever thought of, maybe when you come to church, you don't sense God's presence at all? And then so you wonder, is this church then? Is this really church? if God's presence is not here. 
And I wonder, maybe it's because that we are getting accustomed to much of the uh, rituals and practices which we'll be going through in, later in Luke, that we just lost sight of actually yearning for God's presence. That we're just merely here for just, you know, Ricky Bobby. You know, winning the races, making sure that, that we do our best, just to make sure God is happy so that, like his wife says, we gotta do this because you gotta win the race tomorrow, right? Win life's races, right? Just make sure that God is happy with us, you know, so that he could fulfill our career ambitions and goals and, uh, and desire for money and power. And that's exactly what maybe the people have now become in that temple. That is becoming religious. Because if God's presence is really not here in this place, folks, why are we doing all this? Right? And we have to look individually. I'm not accusing anyone. I myself included. We have to really evaluate ourselves on why we come here. Is it because, is it just for the goodness of gracious, like just to get the gracious point so that nothing bad will happen to us? Or are we really yearning for God's presence? Because I always wonder, and now I'm wondering, and you know, and I've dwelled on this, I go, how come only Simeon and Anna felt this? Felt the presence of God in this temple? How come no one else came storming in? Well, it's because one, this is a baby, <laughs> right? And two, they knew where he came from, it was a manger, from the lowest of the low. Three, he came from a, a, a couple that's poor, right? Remember what their mindset was of a savior and kingdom and who the Lord and savior is, right? They already got influenced by that. And then, so then they weren't even sensing that God's presence. And I wonder if we have some sort of expectations of God that we kind of lose sense of his presence when he enters as well. You follow? Anyway. So I always go like, and then I, went, I looked at, hmm, he also, like uh, Simeon also mentioned that he would be a sword. He would pierce a sword through, the, through Mary's heart, right? And I wonder what that meant. And I refer to it, where, have, where else have I seen this? Because uh, this is where, um, where I want to start off uh, in the next point. In Matthew 10, 34, this is where I found, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's Jesus saying. And I wonder, you know how everybody's uh, in, the, in the Israelites, don't blame them. To, I'm not going to blame them because like, they do yearn for a savior. Seriously, they've been tormented. They've been through a lot. They've been through basically hell. You know, they want solutions to their problems. They want peace. But then Jesus here says, do not, he says to his disciples and to the, God, to the Israelites in front of them, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I wonder, it's because maybe it is not the peace that Jesus, that we, it's, Jesus is not bringing the peace that we expect, that we want. Because like for Mary, she and the rest of the Israelites, they wanted peace, political peace. They want peace from their issues, that the problems, the torment. They want salvation from their problems and, the, and their torment from the Romans. But then Jesus goes, eh, sorry, I'm not gonna bring that. So I'm wondering, again, I'm rambling again now. How about yourself and myself? What do we expect from Jesus then? Are we expecting Jesus to solve our problems, our ailments, our physical ailments, our mental ailments, our, uh, our bad children, <laughs> right? Like, or work situations. Are we here to expect Jesus to bring that peace? Or, is he bringing, or are we expecting him to bring a different kind of peace? A peace, a revolutionary peace, a peace that actually brings justice. Because here's a, let's move on. Here's a, what I'm, I wanted to get at here. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on the for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. 
When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? We are called to follow Jesus. But I wonder sometimes we tell Jesus to follow us. What I think, when I'm, when I'm saying that is because look at what Mary and Joseph said. Mary goes and says, like, uh, no, Jesus, you follow us. Without remembering that this is God we're talking about, and he's in the temple. It's a bigger picture. That God is now in the, in the presence of the world. God is here to save the world through Jesus. And Mary, forgetting that part quite quickly, says, no, you're coming with us, son. We're going home. No, this is home for Jesus. This is where he's supposed to be at. And I'm wondering for us that we too are something similar to that. Behave the same way, see Jesus the same way. No, Jesus, you follow me. You do it. I want to be this. I want to have this health. I want to have this uh, progress in my life. I have this goal. I want to marry this person. So follow me. Bless me. And yet, sometimes, I, and then we wonder, how come you, we, I don't sense God's presence anymore? Well, it's because he went that way. <laughs> Right? You went that way, he went that way. Right? And that, that's what I mean, the, and I think that's what he meant by being a sword. It does hurt at times when Jesus does not follow us. It does hurt when he does not fulfill what we want him to fulfill. Heal the things that we want him to heal. Mend the relationships that, he doesn't, that he's not mending. And maybe even reconcile the stuff that you, at work that's, a, that's an issue. He's not we find it difficult because Mary found it difficult. It pierced her heart, right, when Jesus died. It pierced a lot of the whole disciples' heart when he died on the cross. We find it difficult to see a savior not doing what we expect him to do. See where I'm getting at? He was, he's not here, so when, from learning from this, he's not here to bring the peace that we define. He is bringing the peace that he defines. A peace that brings up the low, and brings down and humbles the, the elite. He brings justice. He brings mercy and grace to the entire world and not just to us. So, back to our question. Who is Jesus for you? Who is Jesus for you? How do you define him? Who do you want him to be? Do you want him to remain in the manger? In other words, you know, I'll come to you when I need you, Jesus. Uh, I'll do my stuff that make you happy so that uh, nothing bad happens to me. Do I, do I come to you just because of out of formality, out of obligation, maybe some religious obligation because I just, got, you know, I'm baptized and I'm Christian, I gotta just do my duty here? Or do you see Jesus as your king, as your Lord, as the sword? And not just any sword, a surgeon's sword to maybe cut, prune, operate on you, like a scalpel, a surgeon, to cut away the things that are deep down, the lowliest of low, the garage, the stuff in our garage, so to speak. Are you allowing him to be that, the sword, to cut, to heal you, to bring justice and mercy upon you? Are we seeing him of that?
a savior king. 